almost half of school shootings are over in the first few minutes. We need to prevent it before it happens. Nineteen students and two dedicated teachers. Today we're here doing yet another show on a senseless mass shooting in America. This one at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Two teachers and 19 children are dead. They left for school in the morning and are never coming home. In the second most deadly school shooting since Sandy Hook. When this happened at Newtown 10 years ago, we called it unthinkable. Now this cold reality has happened again. 10 years ago, I spoke to devastated parents parents whose children were injured, traumatized, and murdered for absolutely no reason. Children who went to school with their whole lives ahead of them and then were just dead. We spoke about the change that needed to happen, changes in laws, changes in mental health checks and support, changes in how to spot and handle warning signs. And in these past 10 years, I've continued to speak to victims, parents and advocates, each time this has happened. Where does it happen? We never know. Churches, supermarkets, schools. When is enough enough? Today, I'm dedicating this show to speaking about how to stop this. And the question is, is it possible? Is it possible to stop this? I believe there are things we can do. And I certainly believe it is past time that we do it. And I know many, if not all Americans, share with me that belief that we do what we can, that we do what we have to, to keep this from happening repeatedly over and over again. I think you're going to be shocked at just how frequently this is happening just on school campuses. We're going to talk about that today. But first, let's take a look at what happened in Uvalde and the lives lost. We come on the air tonight after another mass shooting in America. A South Texas town brought to its knees after a teen gunman opens fire inside an elementary school. According to police, just after recess is when it happened, peach slices, ham sandwiches waiting on the school lunch menu. And that's when 18-year-old Salvador Ramos walked into Robb Elementary School. He was armed with an AR-15 style rifle, also had high-capacity magazines with him, according to police. Weapons, by the way, that he bought legally this very month on his 18th birthday. The day of the shooting, Ramos had a fight with his grandmother over failing to graduate. She was shot in the face and is in critical condition. Ramos fled the home in his grandparents' pickup truck, crashing into this gully. Surveillance video shows him running into the school seconds later. The massacre was about to begin. Authorities tonight confirming that the gunman was in the elementary school for an hour or more before he was shot and killed. The anguished cries of desperate parents after the massacre at Robb Elementary. Pleading with police to rescue their children. An elite border patrol team moving behind a shield entered the classroom and killed the suspect. We hid behind desks and drawers. Well, we were scared and the teacher started telling us we can pray. And I was happy I didn't get shot. 
For 40 minutes, his mother had no idea if he was alive. Now, I'm sure you have been saturated with information about what happened in Uvalde, Texas. And the thing that I think we all need to realize is that this doesn't just happen to someone else. This doesn't just happen in another town. This doesn't just happen to some community we read about. It can happen anywhere. And in this town, 18-year-old Salvador Ramos did the unthinkable. And like is the case in so many of these situations, he telegraphed what he was going to do. There were Instagram posts with him with firearms, deadly firearms, one being an AR-15. He sent some private posts. He said, I'm going to shoot my grandmother. His second post, I shot my grandmother. His third post, within 15 minutes of the first, I'm going to shoot an elementary school. Fifteen minutes later, en route, he crashes his truck in a concrete ditch near Robb Elementary School. We've heard what AR-15s are. You can do a tremendous amount of damage when you can put out that much firepower. Now, I don't care where you stand on the Second Amendment. Ask the common sense question, what does an 18-year-old boy need with that kind of a weapon? What does any civilian need with that kind of a weapon? And if a child, an 18-year-old boy, can get his hands on that, a 15-year-old, 14-year-old can get their hands on that, do they have the maturity to manage it? This is a serious round of ammunition that will do tremendous damage to whatever it hits. Now, again, I'm not going to go back over all of these tragic details with you, but this young man enters the back door and makes his way down a series of short hallways before he enters a classroom where he opens fire with this rapid fire weapon is what we now believe and kills 19 students and two teachers. How long did it take before someone responded? That's in controversy right now. Parents are frustrated saying police officers did not respond fast enough. Parents were talking about charging the school themselves, trying to get something done because they knew that their children were in there. It's reported that a Border Patrol officer ultimately shot and killed Ramos. It's also been reported that he legally purchased two AR platform rifles on two separate dates in May, reportedly around $3,000. Where did he get that money? Did somebody buy these for him? Why was he in possession of these weapons? Most people greatly underestimated how much of a problem this is in America today. And I'm not talking about mass shootings. I'm just talking about school shootings right now. And I want to tell you that the trend is getting worse. In 2021, there was an all-time high number of school shootings. Now, it depends on how you define a school shooting. And I want to tell you that the Center for Homeland Defense and Security, K-12 School Shooting Database, defines it this way. They define a school shooting as any incident where a firearm was brandished or fired at a school. 
Doesn't mean somebody was killed, but a gun showed up at a school and was brandished. And from January 1st through December 5th, the database reported 222 incidences. Now, if you divide that up by the number of average weeks in a school year, which is, we'll pick 36, that's 6.16 incidences per week. Now, if your jaw is not on the floor, I would be surprised. This is clearly headed in the wrong direction. What's it going to take for us to wake up and say we have to do something? More than 311,000 students have experienced gun violence since Columbine occurred. That's according to the Washington Post. This is out of control. Jesse Rodriguez's 10-year-old daughter, Annabelle, was one of the 21 killed. They let her, let her baby get slaughtered, sacrificed, while her ass is sitting behind a wall. 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School should have been starting the first day of their summer break today. Instead, their families are making funeral plans. On the brink of summer vacation, lives in the small town of Uvalde, Texas, have changed forever. This is the deadliest school shooting since the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida in 2018. Max Schechter knows all too well what these Uvalde parents are going through right now. Max's youngest son was one of the 17 innocent victims murdered in 2018 at Parkland, Florida schools in the Parkland, Florida school shooting. I called my son, Ryan. And he said, Dad, where's Alex? I said, I don't know. He said, Dad, don't worry, it's going to be okay. I said, Ryan, I don't think it's going to be okay. Alex wasn't at the hospital. The reason he wasn't at any of the hospitals is because he was still at that school, shot and bleeding and dying. Max's son, Ryan, was a senior at the time of the 2018 Parkland school shooting. Ryan says, just as I mentioned to Max, that it all comes flowing back every time there's another incident. My older son was at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas that day. The fire alarm was pulled and I had just wandered into a supply closet with a janitor and, and maybe a couple of peers. On Valentine's Day in 2018, a lone gunman, a former student, walked into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida and opened fire, killing 17 people and wounding 17 others. It happened on the eve of the 19th anniversary of Columbine, one of the deadliest school shootings in history where 12 students and one teacher were killed by two gunmen. When that happened, we actually brought some of the Columbine survivors to talk to some of those who survived Parkland. And not surprisingly, the memories of that day, those minutes almost two decades ago, were just as fresh as all of those years ago. When these school shootings happen now, it's been 19 years, what effect, if any, does this have on the two of you? It affects me terribly. Um, I'm now a mother of two, and I send them into this environment that I feel isn't safe. It's a struggle every, every day to send them off to school. Especially when another shooting happens, it brings it all back. It's re-victimizing all over again. You relate to the sounds, the emotions. You're 
square one again. It You're like right resets my progress. You know, it was tragically foreboding to have these former Columbine students talk to the Florida students. Katie related that she had struggled with alcohol and drugs during this time and that it was self-medication. And she said, that's something that I overcame on my own. And once I had my son, I couldn't handle my own grief and my own struggles, let alone try to deal with raising a small human being. I asked her about guilt. You said you felt a lot of guilt since then. Tell me why. Survivor's guilt is the sort of thing I didn't anticipate where you don't feel worthy. It's like, why, why did I make it? What was my purpose? Why was it them and not me? And she talked about the fact that she ran past her best friend who survived, but she said, I ran right past her. And she said, when it came down to it, the instinct was to save myself. And I was raised to help other people. But when you get down to it, that's not what was happening. So I had tremendous survivor's guilt for years, uh, including a coach that she looked up to a lot who died saving her life and that of many others. Now, why am I pointing this out now? And it was so moving to see these survivors separated by 20 years is in America, we tend to read these headlines and we genuinely care about these people. We genuinely want to see it stopped. We genuinely want to see it change. But as time goes on and we're absorbed into our own lives, it gets pushed off center stage. But this doesn't end when the cameras go away. It doesn't end when the headlines change. These Columbine survivors, now 20-plus years later, are still suffering from what happened that day. They have post-traumatic stress syndrome, and these are the ones that survived. Think about the families who sent their children to school that morning and they didn't come back home alive. Think about what they have to deal with every time they turn on the television. They open up their computer and they see that nothing has changed. In fact, it's getting worse. They think, well, if my child died and it was a catalyst for change, then at least there's some meaning to the loss. But was there meaning to the loss? If it's gotten worse, if it's doubled, if it's gone up 98% since 2017, then you say, I lost my loved one, or I went through this and survived, and nothing has changed. In fact, it's gotten worse. They died in vain. Their life meant nothing. My 20 years of suffering meant nothing. What does it take to get people's attention? What does it take for us to say, we have to do something different? What's causing this to happen? Threats, just threats in the first month of the school year have gone up. September of 21, they identified 151 threats compared to a three-year average of 29. What is going on? This has to be analyzed. It has to be thought about. And actual shootings doubled from the previous year at 55 up from 24. 
we need to not be thinking about, hey, how can we keep doing the same thing? We need to be thinking about how can we do something different? So the question is always, well, all right, let's identify the profile. Who's doing this shooting? Sadly, I can tell you there is no profile, and we don't have the psychological tools to identify who's going to be a shooter. But there are some commonalities. There are some indicators, and I'm going to share with you what some of those are. These are often current or former students of the school they go to shoot up. It's not always the case. And they are often in some type of mental, emotional, or social crisis. And being bullied was common. Now, do they go back and shoot the bully? Occasionally, but typically that's not the case. Shooters go and aggress not against their transgressors, but against surrogates. They go shoot against somebody that's just a stand-in. They just go shoot somebody that is available, somebody that they aren't threatened by. These are people that have experienced observable, now I want to emphasize observable, mental health symptoms in three main categories, psychological, behavioral, and neurological. I'm emphasizing observable because people notice that they're behaving unusually, about half of them have received one or more mental health services. So they've come to the attention of mental health providers. So they're not completely in the dark and about these people. They are on somebody's radar. Most typically, it's depression or suicidal ideation. Some have anxiety. A much smaller percentage than you would think present with anger. They're depressed. They've been shunned by society. They've been through some type of rejection experience. And our number one need is acceptance. Our number one fear is rejection. And they've had some trauma in that regard. They very frequently have negative home life factors, such as divorce, drug use, someone in the family, a mother or father, have criminal charges, and domestic violence is common. So, They exhibit these concerning behaviors, and that contradicts the myth that, oh, it's the nicest guy, it's the last person I would have ever thought of. That's not true. And here's a very troubling element. They're often the product of the contagion effect. And what do I mean by that? They're inspired by other school shooters. I say that's particularly troubling because when you see what has happened in Uvalde, that predicts that it's very likely that there's going to be a repeat of this in the near future. Someone out there that is really desperate, really tragic, is going to see what has happened here, and they're going to become obsessed with it, and they're going to react to it. Maybe in a week, maybe in a month, who knows? And one of the most confounding things about this is they often tell others what they're going to do before they do it. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Last year, we covered another shocking school shooting that happened just days after Thanksgiving. On November 28, 2021, 15-year-old Ethan Crumley 
walked into Oxford High School in a Detroit suburb and shot and killed four students. Some students actually stayed home because they said they knew what was going to happen and they didn't feel safe going to school. Now, this crime not only stood out at the time as being the deadliest school shooting since Parkland, but for being the first where a shooter's parents have been charged with crimes linked to the shooting. Ingham County, Michigan Circuit Court Judge Rosemarie Acalina is no stranger to high-profile legal cases. She is most notable for presiding over the 2018 USA Gymnastics Sex Abuse Scandal, sentencing Larry Nasser to up to 175 years in prison. When we sat down last December to talk about the Oxford High School shooter, she believes the parents need to be held more accountable. They basically gave him a license and permission to kill. Did they know the gun was in the backpack? Did they know the plan, what he was going to carry out? Why not bring him home if there's trouble? Isn't their job to know where the gun is? If the gun is missing from home and their child is being called in at school and he's drawing pictures of bullets and blood and they say, where's our gun? And he was shooting it the day before. Isn't it endemic upon a parent to say, wait a minute, this isn't a coincidence. And we also heard about what happened from Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard. Sheriff, when you find out about this in this case and in most cases, uh, you intervene once something happens, right? The school district officials did interview the subject the day before and the day of the tragedy, and we were never brought into those meetings. And that would have triggered the protocols that, that we have in place. And that is that if there's concerning behavior, the first thing we do is determine if there's a threat immediately. I'm sad to say, we sit here today, we've had more threats today. If you make a threat, even if it's not real, if you think it's a joke, it's not. If you have no intention of carrying out a threat, it's still a crime. The shooter charged through the doors of Uvalde's Robb Elementary School, opening fire just after 1130. Armed law enforcement says with an AR-15 assault rifle, high capacity magazines, and a handgun. And we have learned that the gunman legally purchased two assault rifles and almost 400 rounds of ammunition earlier this month for his 18th birthday. Another very powerful weapon. And by the way, these weapons are very expensive. I think in this case, there were reports that the gun cost close to $1,800. And you have to ask yourself, where does this kid get money for an $1,800 assault rifle? When you talk to the family, the grandfather says he knew nothing about it. Could you give us any insight into his Not state really. of mind? What, when's the last time you spoke to him? Uh, I speak to him daily. Yeah. You know he had guns in the house? No, I didn't know. I just, I get up at 5 o'clock, leave, come back. He didn't know that the, the child had this. And look, I'm sorry, but if you have a child that's building up an arsenal, it's your job to know. You need to know what your child is spending money on and where they're getting that kind of money. There were two rifles apparently bought in the Uvalde shooting. And we don't want to focus on just statistics and firearms and weapons and forget what's on the other end 
of that rifle? What's on the other end of this tragedy? It may just seem like, you know, firearms and guns and violence, but let's not forget the humanity. Some of the children, and we are talking children here, nine, ten-year-old children in Uvalde, one of them speaking to a local news outlet, KENS5, in Texas, said, When I heard the shooting through the door, I told my friend to hide under something so he won't find us. He said, and I quote, I was hiding hard, and I was telling my friend not to talk because he's going to hear us. The boy shared heartbreaking details about what happened in that room. He said, and I quote, when the cops came, the cop said, yell if you need help. And one of the persons in my class said, help. A guy overheard and he came and shot her, the boy said. The cop barged into that classroom and the guy shot at the cop and the cops started shooting. He said that once the shooting stopped, he came out from under the table. I got out with my friend. I knew it was police because I saw the armor and the shield. It's a 10-year-old child. I mean, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. Now, the big question that you have to be asking yourself right now is, if what we've been talking about is true— And it is. You can study this for years, as I have, and you're going to find that these people are likely to tell somebody what they're going to do. They're actually very likely to be known to the system. So if they tend to have what's called leakage, meaning that they post a manifesto, or they put things on the internet, or they tell people what they're going to do, you think, then how are we not stopping this? How are we not doing this? Well, there are a couple other factors that I haven't talked about yet. And one is, you know, where do they get the guns? Even before the horrors of Uvalde, Texas, and Buffalo just 10 days ago, the arrows were pointing in an alarming direction. 61 active shooter incidents in 2021. That's twice as many as in 2017. The shooting incidents took place in 30 states last year, six in California and five each in Georgia and Texas. The total number shot, 243, including 103 killed. Our heart is breaking for these families. And before today, 14 deaths in or near schools this year, a total that more than doubled this afternoon. Now, we've talked about a couple instances where the individual apparently purchased the guns. And in Texas, for example, you're not permitted to possess a firearm if you're under 18. Many of these school shooters are under 18. So where are they getting the guns? Research tells us they get these guns at home. They get these guns when they are not properly secured. So you cannot tell me that these families don't know that they have someone in their family having a problem fitting in, coming into conflict with authority. They should be concerned with depression. They should be concerned with suicide. 
and they should be concerned with having guns readily available to someone with that mindset, even if they are just concerned with the young man shooting himself. But in so many of these instances, we find that they simply walked into another room of the house and picked up a gun that was readily available. Now, what am I saying here? These shootings can be stopped, but it doesn't do any good if it just raises awareness and everyone is heartbroken and sends their prayers. Please do that. But along with doing that, we need to write to our congressmen, to our senators, state and federal, and insist that there needs to be a program for universal threat assessment. There needs to be a protocol where we add a crisis response team. If so many people hear that something like this is going on, why aren't they doing anything about it? They're not doing anything about it because they don't know what to do. They don't know who to call. They don't know what to say. They don't want, if there's somebody that they think, oh, this is a dangerous individual, they certainly don't want to irritate that person. They don't want to feel like, hey, I ratted them out. I tattled on them. Now they're going to be mad at me, so I'm in danger. We need to have a situation where we can give students an anonymous, protected way to report concerns, to report a post on Instagram, hearing something in the lunchroom where they can report that and someone can reach out to that student and find out, do they need help? And do they fit a profile? Do they have a home life that is tumultuous? Are their guns easily accessible inside the home? Are all of those factors there that make up a volatile situation? Because make no mistake, we have to focus on prevention, not intervention. Why? Because almost half of school shootings are over in the first few minutes. If there's an active shooter, of course you want to call 911. But the truth of the matter is, even if you have an officer on site, that officer is likely to react to the shooting, not stop the shooting. That means we need to prevent it before it happens. If that armed guard is at one end of the hallway and the shooter is at the other end of the hallway, a lot of death can be dealt before even a responsible officer can go into action. You can see 44% of attacks are one minute or less. Another 24% are one to two minutes. So you've got 68% of attacks are two minutes or less. So having a guard on campus, unless they are standing real close to that attacker, they're going to be reacting to what has already happened instead of preventing it from happening. Do I think there should be an officer on campus? Of course there should be someone there. But we need to put at least as much effort in preventing that shooter from ever picking up that weapon. And that means there has to be a system where they are identified by the system, where somebody has a place to go, someone to tell. Colorado has such a program called Safe to Tell. It's a statewide anonymous reporting tool which accepts tips 24-7. And they have had... 19,861 tips in the 2018-2019 year. This gives them the opportunity to react before someone picks up a gun, 
and steps on campus. It could be something that we can look at. And if you want to see it, it's at www.safetotell.org. That's S-A-F-E, the number two, and T-E-L-L. Now, the last thing I want to talk to you about, because I've been asked this a lot, is what do you say to your children? Nine-year-old Andrea Herrera used to play every day with her stepbrother, Jose Flores. He would always say, I want to be a cop so I can protect all these other people and all the, but the bad guys. Now, these toys are all she and their little brother, Jaden, have left. What does that make you think about? He's just sad because um, well, the fact that he wanted to be a cop and he didn't have the chance to be it. This is Mia Cirillo. She's just 11 years old. The fourth grader is struggling to cope with Tuesday's massacre. Her aunt and godmother Blanca Rivera telling us the nightmare scenario was one she witnessed up close and personal. Mia um, got some blood and put it on herself, but she couldn't pretend that she was dead. Jamal said that she um, she saw her her friend full of blood and she got blood and put it on herself. In this instance, fortunately, we're coming up to the end of the school year for many school systems, but not everywhere. And whether your child is going to be attending more classes or whether they're not, you've got to think through what to tell your children. And the first thing I want to say to you is do not assume that your children know about this because they may not. But if they don't know about this, I'm not sure that I would talk to them about this. And the flip side of that is, well, if I don't, what if one of their friends does? Wouldn't I rather control that conversation before it's visited upon them by their friends who may traumatize them? That is a risk. And you might want to talk to your friend's parents about this and come up with a plan. If you make the decision to talk to your child about this, then You want to do it in an age-appropriate way. That term gets used a lot, but never defined. So let me define that. You want to define that based on their questions to you. Ask them what they know. Listen very carefully to the words that they use. And meet them where they are. Don't ask them to meet you where you are. If they say... Well, I heard something happened at another school and some children were hurt. That's the level you want to discuss this with them at. If they say, I saw something on the internet or TV where somebody murdered 19 children, then, okay, again, you want to ask questions. Well, what does that mean to you? What do you know about that? Let them tell you what their construct is of murdered or killed or hurt. Let them, don't assume that they understand the meaning of all those words. It doesn't happen very often. There are people that love you and care about you, and we keep a really close eye on everything that's going on. And if you ever see anything that makes you uncomfortable or that worries you in any way, then you tell your teacher and you tell mom and dad. And when this is being wall-to-wall covered, 
I wouldn't leave my television on and let them see things that they could overinterpret or overreact to. Now, am I suggesting that with young children you downplay this and not emphasize the gravity of it? Yes, I am. I don't think that you want to ask children to deal with adult issues or introduce to them things over which they have no control. Now, for older children, you want to ask them what their questions are. And again, reassure them that you are in close contact, you're keeping an eye on things, and make sure that's true. Don't go running up to the school with your hair on fire, hysterically demanding to know what the security protocols are. But have an intelligent conversation with your school. Are they adhering to proper protocols? Is there proper security? Make sure that people aren't thinking, oh, this would never happen here. But make sure that you have in mind what you're going to say to your children if you're asked this question. As we say goodbye today, we want to honor the 19 innocent young boys and girls and their two brave and loving teachers who all lost their lives in this terrible, senseless tragedy. Ellie Garcia. She was very sweet. She was very happy and very outgoing. Uzziah Garcia. Nevia Bravo. Maddie Yelena Rodriguez. She was charismatic, smart, bright, beautiful, happy. McKenna Lee Elrod. Xavier Lopez. Tess Mata. Annabelle Guadalupe Rodriguez. Rogelio Torres. Alethea Ramirez. She was just a young girl full of life. JC Carmela Loevanos. Jayla Nicole Seguero. Jacqueline Cazares. She loved to do music. I loved to be around family. You know, trying to help out anybody she could. Miranda Mathis. Ileana Cruz Torres. Jose Flores Jr. Alexandria Lexi Ania Rubio. Layla Salazar. Amara Jo Garza. And their two brave and loving teachers. Eva Morales. And Irma Garcia.